This is In Jewish History, a podcast of Indiana Jewish History. My name is Michael Brown, and I'm your host. Hi, everyone, and welcome to In Jewish History, a podcast of the Indiana Jewish Historical Society. My name is Michael Brown, and I'm your host. And I'm here today with Eric Kimmel, a famed author. And we're here today to discuss some of his works, uh, what inspired some of his works. And I want to give you a warm uh, who's your welcome, Eric, uh, here on this very cold day. Oh, thanks. Well, very cold day is one of the reasons why I'm out here in Oregon, because uh, my wife and I were living in Elkhart when the blizzard of 78 came roaring through. And we said, we need to find another climate. The glacier is going to come. We're going to start seeing woolly mammoths out there in the street. <laughs> oh, I'm very familiar with northern Indiana weather. <laughs> now, um, what what brought you out to uh, northern Indiana, and when did you originally move here? Well, um, we moved in 73. I, had did, I did my graduate work, got my doctorate in education at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And we were looking for a job. And my wife, oh, she also had finished her degree. And we were looking for a job that, uh, you know, would be available for both of us. And our agreement was, we'll go where we have a job for two. And if we can't get that, we'll go with whoever gets the best uh, job. And uh, a wonderful offer came through from IUSB and... Uh, you know, it was easy to move from Urbana to South Bend. We just got in the car and moved, and uh, we've been there for the, uh, we were there for the next five years. Uh, Marsha, my first wife, is still there. She retired as dean of the School of Education, and uh, her daughter lives in Granger. She lives in Sarasota, where uh, I think plenty of other faculty members from Indiana live. And uh, I treasure those five years in Indiana. I mean, they were great years. I love teaching at IUSB. Our faculty was first rate. I think IUSB is uh, an undiscovered treasure uh, in Indiana because you will get a really good education from a top-notch faculty. And the students were great. They were hardworking. They were challenging. Um, they were prepared. And uh, they were a joy to teach. So uh, I have no negative memories about Indiana. Uh, even the cold weather doesn't bother me. A good snappy cold weather with snow on the ground uh, is a beautiful sight when you're looking at it through your window. And I know how to drive on ice, which is not true of most <laughs> of the people out here on the West Coast. So those were great years, and uh, I treasure them. Uh, did you participate at all in the Jewish community here in, in, in northern Indiana at all, in Elkhart or South Bend? Uh, yes, I was, uh, well, I had a lot of friends in the Jewish community. A good friend of mine was Rabbi Kupferman, who I think was the rabbi at uh, Sinai. He, he passed away at a very young age, unfortunately. Um, I had a lot of friends, Posey Tucker and... Uh, the Hoffman family I was very close with. We had two very, very good close friends. They're gone now, Toby and Charlie Mintz, who were mainstays of the Jewish community. Uh, the Jewish community in South Bend was very much all-embracing. There weren't a lot of Jewish people, so when you came through, uh, they wanted to get to know you. Who are you? Uh, would you like to fit in? Um, my 
you know, dear, dear friend, Rose Czar. I met Rose the first time I went to, uh, to Rosh Hashanah services or just moved to town. Uh, she looked me over and the first thing she said was, are you married? <laughs> because she had her daughter, Eugenia. She was trying to make a match for her. So um, the Jewish community at South Bend was a, was a lovely community. And uh, what I realized, having lived in other places, that was rather unique because uh, uh, the, the Jewish community in Portland is a little different for historical reasons. And it's very, very spread out. On South Bend, everybody was pretty close together, and there weren't a lot of people, so they had to know each other and take care of each other. It was uh, a different atmosphere and a lovely atmosphere. It's another thing I still treasure. That's so fascinating. And um, Rosar, you know, uh, another yeah. – I, I don't know if she was an author at that point. Had she already written her, um, her biographical oh, no. book? Well, yeah. I, we wrote it together, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, uh, I wanted to do a Holocaust book and I had an outline for a fictional story, uh, something along the lines of Jane Yolen's The Devil's Arithmetic, though it wouldn't have been as good. And, uh, I talked to Rose because people told me that, uh, she had gone through that era. And, And when I was growing up as a kid in Brooklyn, you didn't ask questions. They were... First of all, it didn't have a name at the time. The whole name Holocaust Shoah came along much later. It was sort of this blank in history. And I knew several neighbors and the parents of classmates who had numbers on their arm. And you were told not to ask about that because otherwise you would get a good, fast slap. Uh, It was raw and very sensitive. So... um, you know, I went to Rose and I asked her if she would look over the manuscript that I had, which was really an outline. And she looked it over. She, you know, pointed out some things that were okay, other things that were not accurate or would be unlikely. And then she said, you know, I should tell you my story. And I said, oh, okay, I would love to hear it. And then she started telling me this fantastic story that, uh, I mean, if you saw in a TV movie, I'm, you, you wouldn't believe it. You'd say, oh, those things don't happen, but they did. And uh, all of a sudden, I realized I've got something much better than anything I was working on. So I dropped my own project, and I said to Rose, just talk to me. I think this should be a book, and I'm going to do my best to make it a book. And, uh, you know, frankly, Rose was had such a wonderful command of the language and was such a wonderful storyteller that had she felt uh, confident as a writer, she could have written it herself. But she wanted me to be the amanuensis, so she would dictate it to me. But that is her voice coming through in the book as she told me these stories. And so I would go, I'd sit at her kitchen table, and she would tell stories. And then her husband, Meyer, would come by, and Meyer would add things. And then sometimes they would have arguments. No, it wasn't that way. No, that person wasn't there. And they would go back and forth. And then we would laugh, have coffee, lunch, and tea. But it was... uh, it was really unnerving in a sense to hear these two wonderful people talking about these absolutely horrific events uh, as if they were telling you what happened when they went to the supermarket uh, the other day. Um, And I asked Rose, I said, you know, a lot of people I've known who've gone through these things don't talk about them. 
And Rose said, it's my duty to talk about them, because if I don't talk about them, they're going to be forgotten and people are going to pretend they never happened. So uh, when I started writing the book, I just wrote, I would write down a draft based on the tape recorded interviews. I would give them to Rose and Rose would read them over, uh, suggest changes, corrections, rewrites. And the agreement that we made was that uh, Rose has to approve it. Uh, if there's something that needs to be changed, I'll change it. Don't, uh, you won't hurt my feelings because I wanted it to be accurate. The accuracy was so important. And when we finally came to the end, we had a huge manuscript, it was 600 pages long. Rose said, yes, this is it. This is my story. This is the way I've told it. And, uh, feel free to send it out to a publisher. And, uh. You know, it's been in print ever since. I wish it was a movie. It's better than most of the, the films that you see on TV anyway. And quite an incredible story. I wish uh, I had the parts that we chopped out because the book represents maybe uh, about a third of the total manuscript that we had. And then I have tapes from Meyer, too, uh, telling his story, which is you know just as incredible, except that never became a book. Maybe one day I'd like to sit down and tell some of these stories as I remember them, uh, because they're, they're very good. Rose Czar, from what I heard, had a tremendous wit and a tremendous uh, sense of humor, of dry humor. Um, did that come across to you at all? In oh, your gosh, yes. Them? Both of the czars were astonishingly clever. Um Oh, I remember uh, Meyer was a machinist, and he had an appreciation for fine metal objects. He collected swords, especially samurai swords. And he had several samurai swords. He had a, a nasty-looking Turkish yadagon. And, you know, he was happy to show them to me, tell me about the workmanship that went into each one. And Rose would say, I'm afraid to sleep at night. He'll take one of those knives <laughs> Cut off my head. Um, oh yeah, I mean, that, let me. You know, I'd have to think, but there's 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 so many things. But see, the dark side is it's astonishing they had such good humor because of the things they had gone through. I mean, anybody else would be traumatized, but uh, the fact that they could laugh, the fact that they could talk and tell the story. Um, the fact that they could look history in the eye and not flinch, I think that's one of the reasons they survived. Um, they had that sense of humor. They had that wonderful sense of irony and that, that inner toughness, which I think is a characteristic of uh, Jewish people throughout time. Um, if we connect to Herschel of Osterpol, that's Herschel too. You know, the world doesn't treat him very nicely, but uh, he doesn't back down. He's not afraid. He looks it in the eye and speaks his mind. Uh, which brings me to my next question. Um, where, how did you get so interested in Herschel of Osterpol? Uh, how did you hear about him? Oh, well, I grew, I'm a kid growing up in Brooklyn, New York. As Brooklyn as Brooklyn can be, Flatbush, but... We were, our house was between Flatbush Avenue and Nostrand Avenue, right in the heart of Brooklyn, in a very Jewish neighborhood. And um, our grand, my grandma lived with us. And my, grand, my grandma was, an, she was a very interesting person. 
because uh, she came over in about 1906. Uh, she grew up in, uh, in Ukraine, in a Western town that's very famous, I found out, from Ukrainian people I've met. Uh, the name of the town is Kolomea. And there's a dance. You go on YouTube and type in Kolomeki. It's this wild dance, lots of kicks. The men dance, the women dance. Uh, the dance is named after the town. And then we were on a cruise once, and the director of activities was a wonderful one, young woman from Odessa. And I said, well, you know, my mother's family's from Ukraine. She said, where? I said, Kolomea. She says, oh, that, that's a famous town. There's a whole cycle of literature, short stories that are called Kolomeki. And these are funny. They're sarcastic, ironic. So I don't know. It must have come through grandma from the air because those are exactly the kind of stories I like. She, unlike a lot of uh, immigrant, or at least the immigrant story that you'll hear, and we looked over the uh, the railing of the ship and we saw the Statue of Liberty and our hearts just swelled with joy. We were finally in America. Well, that wasn't my grandma. She didn't like America at all. Uh, she was homesick for Europe. She was homesick for her small town which is in a beautiful part of the country. It's at the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains. She grew up in the country, never, didn't wear shoes half the year, never spent a day in school. Uh, and then my grandfather was, uh, you know, made a living as a salesman in Germany. So they moved to Danzig, and she lived in Danzig during the days of Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, when Germany was on the ascendant. And she loved Germany. She spoke perfect German. She would have, she, if my grandfather could have gotten German citizenship, I wouldn't be here talking to you because they would have stayed there. When she saw the Statue of Liberty, she cried. She would never see Europe again. Uh, and I would have cried too if I'd ended up in a fifth floor cold water flat on the east side. So she lived with us. She, she, I mean, she had a gift for languages. I mean, she could just rattle off. Well, Yiddish was her her uh, home language, but she could switch into Ukrainian, Polish, German, uh, just like that. And uh, never bothered to learn English much. She didn't like America. She didn't like the sound of English. She didn't like being here. Um, so she spoke Yiddish to me when I was a kid. And uh, my mother was a teacher, so grandma was my babysitter. And, uh, you know, we would sit, I'd pluck chickens, you know. You know, pluck out the little pin feathers, and she would tell me stories of the old country growing up. So I know a lot more about her than I really know about my parents because they didn't talk that much about uh, their lives when they were kids. And so I was uh, pretty much bilingual as a child. And uh, Grandma told lots of stories. She liked Helm stories. She liked the Herschel Ostropolia stories. And uh, a lot of stories about, uh, you know, miracles and uh, stories from the Bible. So I grew up surrounded with these stories. And I also had an excellent Jewish education. Uh, I graduated from uh, our synagogue's uh, Talmud Torah, uh, who's the East Midwood Jewish Center. And I'm a high school graduate. I continued my Jewish education until I went off to college. So uh, I had a solid foundation, both at home and uh, academically. 
Uh, it didn't end after bar mitzvah, which I think is a stupid thing to do. You could be Jewish. You need to study. You need to learn. You need to know Jewish history. You need to know customs, ceremonies, folklore, and all kinds of things like that. In college and in graduate school, I should say, I was very active at Hillel and uh, made use of their library and uh, got to know the uh, the Hasidic writings, which I really didn't know up to that point because Grandma, though she came from an area that was the heart of Hasidism, I mean, the Baal Shem began his mission 20 miles down the road in Kuti. Uh, and she didn't think much of Hasidim. Uh, I mean, she was a misnagade, you know, <laughs> I mean, down to the bone. But the stories are, are wonderful. And uh, my first book was Martin Buber's uh, Great Collections. And then I've collected others over the time. So I think the thing, you know, I want to get across in a lot of my writings is, I mean, Jewish history is fantastic. It extends from the time of the Egyptians and the Babylonians or even before uh up to the present day, how many times have the enemies tried to squash us, but uh, we're, we're still here. And I think that's, uh, I mean, that, that accounts for some of the friction that we're seeing today, especially with this uh, thing just with Whoopi Goldberg. I don't think it's something vindictive. I think it's a lack of knowledge, because what did your non-Jewish people know about Jewish people? Well, you've got Bible stories. And then there's uh, the story of uh, Jesus and the apostles. And then there's nothing till you get to the Holocaust. So, I mean, their attitudes toward Jewish people are often formed in a void, especially if you don't know any, you haven't met any. Uh, so naturally, you can pick up whatever garbage happens to be online. Well, this seems to make sense because I don't have anything to counter it. I think that's why not just Holocaust education, but respect for all groups is so important. Uh, and not so much in the sense that, oh, you have to feel guilty about what happened. But you have to understand that people are capable of all sorts of terrible things and that you have to be on your guard so you're not sucked in and uh, become part of it. There, I've talked for a long time. Uh, well, I just want to backtrack to one of the things you said about Misnagdim, about the the opposition to Hasidim, because I just find this so fascinating that although she came from a family that opposed them, she was so enveloped by the culture that even their stories permeated, and even she enjoyed them, even though her family probably totally disagreed with the principles of the Baal Shem Tov and of Hasidim. So that's that's fascinating that even these stories would permeate families that opposed the Baal Shem Tov and oppo opposed uh, Hasidic groups. Well, I, I don't think it's that unusual because ultimately it comes down to people, uh, not movements. Uh, one of my good friends here is, uh, is the Chabad rabbi in town. Uh, Rabbi Chaim was supposed to go for a walk this week, but I got busy and wasn't able to do it. Um, you know, we're all Jewish people together. I often go to the, uh, the Chabad Day School, the Maimonides School, and do programs for them. Um, if you look at the history of this, when Hasidim and uh, Ms. Nugdim went at each other, hammer and tongs, and squealed on each other to the authorities, you're in crazy mode. I mean, we should work together and we should respect each other. 
And, uh, you know, I may never be a chassid, I may never be religious, I may never be frim, but that doesn't mean I have to be an, an enemy or that I can't support uh, what they're trying to do in Jewish education, where they do a, a tremendous job filling a void that uh, may not exist for kids otherwise. And also, uh, the beauty of Hasidism is, and, and, and Chabad is, they love everybody. You know, come on in. You never put on a pair to fill and come, I'll show you how to do it. Um, the door is always open. It's not like, well, we're the last of the real Jews and we'll put the wagons in a circle and huddle behind them. I think that's uh, an attitude that's really wrong. Better to welcome than to push away. Have you ever visited Ukraine before? Gone back to your family's roots? No, I never have. I have a uh, a very good friend. We've never met face to face. We know each other through Facebook, and uh, you know, I, I sure hope Jewish readers would discover her books. Uh, Marcia Skripuch, S K R Y P U C H. She's a Canadian. I think I said that, and uh, she's Ukrainian, and she writes uh, just terrific books about. Uh, what happens to young people during the World War II period, uh, being kidnapped uh, and sent to work as a slave laborer in Germany, which is what happened to Meyer. And, uh, you know, the sorting out after the war where the Soviets want to grab Ukrainians and ship them back, or people are falsely accused of helping the Nazis when it's often the people who work for the Nazis who are accusing the others to cover up their own evil deeds. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I, my, wait, I, I lost the thread. You're gonna have to, Michael, repeat the question. So, oh, so, oh. so, you know, going, I, I think, kind of part of this question is: Have your works been translated into Russian or Ukrainian that you know of? Um, well, I know that Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins was translated into Russian because of PJ Library which does wonderful work in uh, making uh, Jewish books available to families all over the world. I've never been, now I remember your question. I've never visited Ukraine, um, but I remember the thrill when uh, I discovered my grandma's hometown on the National Geographic map. I think I was maybe in the fifth or sixth grade. My mother, I would ask my, my parents, my mother would say, oh, it's by Krakow. Um, and I remember looking at the map, looking for something called Kolomei, and there was nothing like that around Krakow. So I moved further east around Lviv, and there I found something, Kolomia, two wise. Oh, here's another one, Pichinizh. And I said, Grandma, is, do you have a town called uh, Pichinizh? And she said, yeah, your grandfather was from there. I said, what about Otin? She said, Otinia, that was a nice town. I said, how about Sniati? And she says, yeah, yeah, you know, I was there many times. So I knew I had the place. Mm. And she had a little postcard collection of pictures from the town uh, that were taken, I guess, around the late 19th century. And uh, I've just been interested in it, though I've never, I've never gone there. Marsha has been there. She says, it's a pretty little town. Um, would I want to go there? Not right now. <laughs> 
<laughs> not with a looming war, but, but uh, yeah, I had a, I always had this fantasy growing up that my grandma and I get on the train and we get off at the Colomea station because the train went through the town, and uh, there's everybody from the old pictures. There's my great grandma and my great grandfather and all the other relatives. Uh, there to meet us, and uh, I stick close to Grandma because I don't understand any of the languages, but she knows them all. Um, you know, it was a happy dream, and I'd wake up. I don't know if I'll ever get there. Uh, frankly, I'd rather go scuba diving in Hawaii, where I have a very good friend that we go diving together if I can get there. And um, I don't know, or I'd rather go to France because I have another good friend there. Uh, Eastern Europe seems a little too rough, but maybe, maybe one day if things settle down politically. So, so Herschel uh, of Osterpol has this huge draw of both Jews and non-Jews alike, and this sort of universal appeal. So. Tell us a little bit about why you feel that he's such an enduring person universally, such an enduring character. Well, I think it's because he's like the everyman. He's not a superhero. He, in a lot of the original Herschel Ostropolia stories, he's a bit slick. But on the other hand, he's at the lowest level of society. He's desperately trying to make a living in a hostile world. So sometimes he has to bend the rules. Oh, it's simply a matter of, uh, of day-to-day survival. Um, the interesting thing about Herschel and the Hanukkah goblins is it's the only thing that's uh, traditionally Jewish out of that story is Hanukkah and the character of Herschel. The original story is a Ukrainian story. And it was put together like this. I, I was, I like Ukrainian stories because you'll find, um, you'll read a few and you think, you know, I bet that's a Jewish story that, that passed over simply because just the nuances, the ironies are so Jewish. And I read a comment online from a Yiddish translator who said, there's only one language where uh, there's only one language that truly captures the nuances of Yiddish, and that's Ukrainian. And if you go on YouTube and listen to Ukrainian music and close your eyes, you could be listening to Klezma. That these populations were so close and so intimate. I mean, Jews who spoke Ukrainian was, uh, was no big deal, in contrast to my father's family, which came from Poland, which... Uh, hated their Polish neighbors and barely spoke anything but uh, a few words of street Polish. Um, Grandma loved Ukraine. She loved Ukrainian people and felt very close to them. Um, So Herschel began with a Ukrainian story, Ivanko the Bear's Son, in which the main character fools a goblin who lives in a lake. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why don't I take the goblin and I'll multiply them by eight, and I have a Hanukkah story. So let's build on that. Herschel comes to this little town. It's been taken over by the goblins, and uh, he has to get rid of them. How's he going to get rid of them? Well, where are they? Oh, they're in the old shul on top of the hill. Now, a synagogue is never on the top of a hill. Here I'm bending it. This is an American story. 
A synagogue is in the middle of the town. Who's going to climb to the top of a hill <laughs> two times a day? Um, and also, you don't want it up there and isolated. It's liable to be vandalized. So what is on top of a hill? Well, remember, I'm a kid from the 1950s. Horror movies. Frankenstein's Castle, Castle Dracula. So there it is up at the top of the hill with the lightning flashing around it, dark and scary and creepy. And he goes there and he has to fool the goblins for eight nights. And I originally had a goblin for every night, but it was just too long. And when my friend Mariana Karras accepted the story for Cricket Magazine, she said, Oh, it's too long. You got to cut it. I said, okay. So I cut it. So I cut out the middle three goblins and uh, I had a story. And uh, Trina Hyman, wonderful illustrator who later became a great friend of mine, um, she illustrated it for Cricket and then she wanted another crack at it. So it became a book and, uh, and the rest is history. I had a career from that funny little story. But the thing to remember is that... The book wasn't necessarily a great hit in the Jewish community when it first came out. Uh, I would get lots of uh, not-so-nice letters. Uh, what, are you, what are you doing? This is not part of our tradition. We don't have these sort of goblins and creepy-crawly things. Uh, this book is too scary. This book isn't right, blah, blah, blah. And the crazy thing was my grandma loved to tell me scary stories. Well, all her stories... <laughs> They never ended with, and they and and they lived happily ever after. I, I love repeating this, telling this to kids. I said, you know how their stories ended? They go like this. They were usually about kids who disobeyed grandma, and they found them in the woods in the spring after the snow melted. Well, the other one was, and they were never seen again. Because grandma believed in all these things. You better kiss the mezuzah on your door before you go to bed or the things that roam around at night are liable to come through the door and grab you. It was terrifying, but it was also delicious. I think today they would probably lock grandma up for child abuse. Um, but I, I treasure I treasure every moment, both the uh, the stories, the scariness, and also the punch that I often got uh, from her quite frequently. Um, so you see, her uh, Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins is a Jewish character grafted onto a Ukrainian story, um, which was illustrated and published by people who were not Jewish. And I think that's a problem with uh, Jewish publishing sometimes. We tend to get locked into little areas. Well, you know, that's that, that's too strange. That's too odd. That's taking too many chances. So let's stick with what we know. And I think this is a problem with children's books today, that they tend to be preachy. And I began writing in an era when we were getting away from that didacticism. And the important thing was tell the story, tell a good story. And I still believe that my editor on Herschel, my dear friend, Marjorie Kyler, uh, taught me that. Tell the story and the rest will follow. Don't worry about sending a message. If there's a message there, the kids are smart enough to pick it out. And if there isn't, well, so what? It's still a good story, but the story is everything. Get a good story and the rest will follow. 
Wow, I sure ran, <laughs> I sure ran my mouth there. See what happens when you get me going, Michael. <laughs> well, I mean, there, you know, there are dibics, there are golems, there are oh, all kinds yeah. of different things in Jewish culture that exist, uh, you know, from our traditions. But it seems like, for whatever reason, in American Jewish culture, people thought that that was sort of a primitism that you know you could see that in yiddish films but you know in kind of the wholesome american jewish milieu milieu you wouldn't see that would you like when you were growing up right no you wouldn't because well growing up like this is one thing i discuss with uh, a lot of my friends from that era we all went to high school together um i I was one of the few of our classmates in school, and it was a school that was what, maybe about 90% Jewish, but only a handful of kids spoke Yiddish. Yet we all had grandparents who spoke it. In many of the and many of the homes of my classmates, Yiddish was a secret language that the parents used to each other when uh, so the children wouldn't understand. The only reason I spoke it was my father couldn't speak it. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with grandma. She wasn't about to speak uh, English. She didn't feel comfortable in it. So, I mean, I, I mean, you see a lot of this. I, I recently reread Portnoy's complaint. You know, people could go, oh, yeah, you're Shonda, that Philip Roth. No, but it's a, it's a wonderful book if you grew up at the time because, I mean, the big theme of the book is he's trying to break out of this cocoon that his parents have put him in. And why did his parents put him in that cocoon? Because the world outside was so vindictive, so punitive, so hostile. I mean, you hear some of the stories uh, from the older generation that I hear from my father and my aunts. Uh, Life was very, very rough at the beginning of the century for Jewish families. And the only advantage was it was 10 times rougher in Europe. So naturally, parents would try to protect their kids. We want to be Americans because they come through a period in the 20s and 30s when most people did not consider them to be uh, real Americans. Uh, remember Lindbergh um, and the American First Movement. Um and Nazis having rallies in Madison Square Garden. I mean, this was all part of the world before I was born that they remembered very well. So they wanted to shield their kids from it. No, you're 100% Americans, and nobody will ever say that you're not. We learned Hebrew at Hebrew school and not Yiddish. So a lot of my friends could not really talk to uh, their grandparents the way that I could. They did not, they did not hear the stories. So all of that was lost. Um, I consider my, myself fortunate in that I got a little taste of it and that I could use it for my work. And, you know, I, I dearly love it. You know, the other thing is I had an excellent Jewish education, and a lot of kids can't say that, uh, especially if they don't go to a Jewish school or they drop out after their bar mitzvah. And uh, I love Jewish history. I was just fascinated by it. I love Bible stories, uh, you know especially the stories that nobody reads, the really bloody and gory ones in Kings and Samuel and, uh, and Judges. So, I mean, when I'm writing, I'm drawing this vast 
well of uh, of Jewish history, Jewish lore, Jewish tradition, and and that goes into my books, and I love it, and I want to pass it on to kids. Uh, I mean, that's what went into my my latest book, one of my latest books, a graphic novel, Shield of the Maccabees. The idea that the Hanukkah story is that they tell us is really a, a, a story that's boiled down to its essential elements and a lot is left out, including the entire relationship between Jewish people and the Hellenistic world which is a lot more complex and a lot more influential than most people realize. And how do you learn that stuff? Well, you study Jewish history when, when you're in school. Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, I'm, I'm talking, talking, talking. Michael, you should feel free to interrupt me if I'm going on too long. Well, well I mean, the, the whole conversation about, you know, whether American Hanukkah is really authentically Hanukkah <laughs> or not is a whole conversation we probably could have uh, mm-hmm. separately and its historical development. But my question is, um, I believe it was written in the foreword maybe 12 years ago or so. There was an article that wrote, that was written, why, why there are no uh, Jewish fantasy authors or why are there are no Jewish fantasy books? And could you see perhaps a book uh, a, a Jewish fantasy book, like a Jewish version of Lord of the Rings, perhaps that could be published, or would that be beyond the pale of, of? Uh, no, 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 nothing's <laughs> beyond the pale, and yeah. I, I don't understand that statement. Neil Gaiman is Jewish. I mean, I mean, there's so many fine writers. I mean, the the, the people who created all the superheroes, all those cartoonists and the comic book. Uh, writers they're all jewish so i mean and then uh there's an entire trend in yiddish literature which people don't know of jewish fantasy which draws on uh german literature and russian literature i mean it's all there it's just the americans don't know anything about it or don't care to find it and you know jewish publishing is is kind of odd because I mean, you try and get a a book with a Jewish theme published. I mean, where do you take it? The Jewish publishers are very small, and the uh, the non Jewish publishers, well, you compete with lots of other groups. Um, and these days, you know, there are a lot of ethnic groups uh, calling for attention that they've deserved but haven't gotten over the years. So, I mean, you're in the marketplace trying to hawk your your wares, and uh, is there a market? Is, is there a market for it? Are people going to read it? So I don't know. I wouldn't worry about things like that. What counts is the story and writing the story and trying to do uh, to do it as well as you can. I enjoy doing a graphic novel. I'd like to do more. Um, you know, we, we will see what happens. Here's the thing, though. Uh, you have to remember that publishers are a business. And they publish what sells. And if it's not selling, it's not going to to go very far. Um, We talk about how uh, minority groups, uh, Latinos and African-Americans, are not represented in publishing. Uh, But I've always said, I said, you know, if every, let's say, African-American child received a book by an African-American writer, 
on a birthday or Christmas or any other important occasion. Uh, do you know how many books that would be? How many millions of copies? Use the power that you have, the economic power that you have. If books, if it's important to learn how to read, that's an important to have books. I think that's one advantage that Jewish families and Asian families, too, had as immigrants, that they valued education. Education was the way up. And with other groups, especially if they're coming from rural areas where there were no opportunities to get an education, where uh, most of the people in the family could not read or write, then that wasn't the case. So, I mean, there are cultural uh, differences in here, too. But I tend to say if uh, Jewish families want to see more, if Ju more Jewish fantasies, well, they should be looking for them. They should be buying them. And if they are, you're going to start seeing them. I mean, America has a wonderful Jewish literature. There's so many outstanding writers and so many uh, just terrific books. Uh, I mean, nobody could say, gee, there aren't any books for Jewish kids. No, there are plenty of books for Jewish kids. You need to go to the library and uh, start looking for them. Ask your librarian. They'll, they'll let you have them. All right. Well, uh, well, th thank you. Thank you, Eric, uh, for all your insights and talking about your creative process and uh, how you come up with these amazing, amazing uh, stories uh, that have touched countless generations and more generations to come, I'm sure. Well, thank you, Michael. Are we at the end? I've enjoyed this so much. I <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll... we'll We'll probably talk some more um, offline here too, but uh, I really appreciate you coming on to the In Jewish History podcast and sharing some of your memories. And maybe sometime we'll 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 do some other programming. Hopefully, I'd love it. Count me in. Just let me know, and I'll be there. Fantastic. Thank you, and uh, and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Michael. Thank you for listening to the In Jewish History podcast, a project of the Indiana Jewish Historical Society. Look us up on the web at ijhs.org.